911, what's your emergency? Welcome to Life Beyond the Sirens podcast with Brett, Tim, and Stu. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Stories and advice from frontline workers. Okay, folks, today we have Dr. Amy B. Killen on the show, and she be killing it. Uh, she is an anti-aging and regenerative medicine physician specializing in aesthetics, which Tim doesn't have any of, and sexual medicine. Uh, so we're pretty stoked to have you on the podcast. We're yeah. going to pick your brain all about this stuff because uh, it's important to people in our profession. So I guess uh, why, don't you, why don't you just start off by telling us a little about yourself. Um, I'm from a small town in Texas uh, called Burleson and ended up going, getting into, uh, I got into medicine and I decided to do emergency medicine um, because I liked the idea of kind of being a handy person to have around. Um, I wasn't really sure what type of medicine I wanted to go into, but I was, I really liked, uh, you know, doing outdoor activities and wilderness medicine and um, just kind of like the idea of, you know, just being available and to help people um, at, any, at any moment. And so I, I, I went to ER for residency and I did ER residency. And then I worked for another seven years as an ER physician in Austin. So about 10 oh, years cool. total in the ER. Towards the end of my ER uh, sort of years, I just started, I had a couple of things happen. First, I had my three kids and I had them all three within about two years. So it was a lot going on at home. Uh, and I was just getting, you know, not eating well, definitely not sleeping, um, not exercising, not, you know, just all the things. And then the Tell stress, you know, it. of course. <laughs> really? That, that is my life right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, after a few years of that, um, I started seeing, I started seeing how, how sort of bad my own health was mental and physical. And then I started looking at all the patients that were coming into the ER. And as you can probably imagine, you know, a good, probably 70% of them were there because of either stress or lifestyle choices that they'd made at some point, um, or lack of education or something along those lines that could have been prevented. And so I started becoming interested in the idea of, you know, can we prevent some of this stuff and can I get healthier and can I make these other people healthier in the process? So, um, that was the, the thinking on why I eventually left the ER, started becoming interested in, um, various forms of preventative medicine, um, and eventually settled on kind of, uh, regenerative medicine, which is like stem cell medicine, using your own body to heal itself. Uh, I do a lot of work with longevity. I do a lot of work with, you know, sexual health, skin health, um, human optimization kind of stuff, if you will. That's amazing. Was that, I imagine that must've been quite the leap to go from the ER. Like my brother is an ER doctor. Um, he does a couple other like clinics and stuff on the side. It's a very demanding job with weird hours, but I imagine it must've been like quite the leap of faith to be like, I'm going to transition out of that into something brand new. It was a total leap of faith and I had no idea what was going to happen. And, you know, my, I, my whole identity was I was an ER doctor. Like that's what I was. Um, when someone asked you, you know, who you are, I was like, oh, I'm an ER doctor. Um, and so to, to leave that behind was a big leap of faith. And I, you know, all my friends, most of them were also ER doctors um, or other doctors like in the hospital. And so they all thought I was crazy. They, you know, a lot of them made fun of me. You're, you know, you're going to be a, you know, you're going to be a quack. You're going to be, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> but I also, I also knew that I didn't want to be doing the same thing in 10 years. Like I didn't, I didn't think I could handle the same every single day for the did next, you, you know, 10 or 20, uh, 30 years. Obviously it's a very stressful job. Like, uh, did you find it like compoundingly like overwhelming being an ER, ER doctor because the one thing my brother said to me that kind of stuck stuck with me is like he's like dude when somebody comes in and you know everyone turns to you to look for answers and you're like oh my god yeah I guess I'm the guy that's got to figure this out so like there's a lot on the line yeah. and you're the one 
that's responsible. You know, it's funny because I actually liked the really sick patients a lot. Like I loved when, you know, when someone would come in super sick and the whole team is on, on there and you're putting in lines and you're intubating and you're doing, you know, you have this whole thing going. Um, I love that all day long. And that's actually the only reason that I stayed for the, for so long was because of those patients. Um, the patients that I love were, it was, was all of the other stuff, you know, the toothaches, the chronic back pain, the, um, you know, people who had, you know, unfortunately you know, drug addictions and, and psychiatric issues that we couldn't, we weren't helping and they kept coming back over and over again. Right. Um, that's what out of me. It wasn't that it wasn't the sick people, um, that really, really needed care. It was just everything else that, you know, should have been taken care of in clinics or by primary care doctors or by, you know, other, other places that, that weren't the ER. It was like, kind of like a failure of the system almost that like, almost like burnt you out a little bit. Yeah. And, and you'd exactly. And you'd, you'd patch them up and you'd send them out and they come right back and you patch them up and you send them out and they come right back. Yeah. Um, and that's the, that's the stuff that I felt like was, um, was the problem. In fact, you know, the, the, the really sick patients I feel like are what got me, got me through like that's that adrenaline rush, right. uh, and, you know, knowing that you actually did some good and you saved a life or, you know, that's what, uh, was, I lived for those moments. And I remember the day that I decided to leave, I, I was, so I worked a 4am shift. So 4am to 2pm was my shift. And I was the only doctor on those first three hours or so. And on this particular day, I remember that EMS, two different EMS crews, one brought in a, um, a very bradycardic patient. So heart rate was, you know, 25, 30, every blood pressure was down, unresponsive, you know, like, you know, the patient. And then the other patient that was brought in right next to the, next to them was a tachycardic um, in some kind of uh, fast rhythm, I don't know, heart rate 200s and also right. unstable, also, you know, also unresponsive. And they put them in two different rooms side by side because I was the only doctor on. So I have one patient that's too fast and one that's too slow and they're both unstable. And I stood in the hallway and I was like just directing, you know, the nurses to push different drugs here and here and push the paddles on here, but, but, you know, and it was a whole thing. And, and I ended up saving both patients at the same time. And, and it was amazing, but I didn't feel like the rush or the, like, I didn't feel the pleasure from that then that I used to feel. Mm. And I was like, you know, if I don't, if I'm not excited by this, then I don't know what, what's left for me here. Cause that should be like, like, that's so cool. Like two at the same time, like, I don't know, like that would be the challenge of the job, right? Like, that was so cool. It, I mean, it was it was so cool. But then the nurse comes up and she's got a, a, a stack of charts this big, and people are angry because they've had to wait for two hours. And this guy has dental pain, and he wants to know when he's going to get his dilated. And you right. know, you have all yeah. these people who are. I mean, it's the the whole ER has been waiting for me, and so this stack is still there, um, right. and nobody cares that I just saved these two people, and nobody cares that you know that they were that they were super sick. So it's just, you know, the system has some problems for sure. Did you ever get compassion fatigue from that? Like going from those super serious patients where you may have to cardiovert them to bring down their heart rate, um, to going to somebody who has like a, a tummy ache out in the, the waiting room, would you get uh, compassion fatigue? Yeah, I think that that's definitely a, a problem. And I think that a lot of uh, doctors do get a little jaded, um, over time and, and, you know, we tend to not take, um, take some of those other cases quite as seriously as we should. Uh, I, I don't, you know, hopefully I wasn't showing it to the patients, but I think that that probably did happen. Just but. rolling your eyes internally. Like, Oh my God, you're 50 yeah. years old and had a nightmare. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Working in the yeah, ER is yeah. obviously very stressful and you have to perform at your best. Um, or even obviously in your job now, 
longevity stacks. That's something that I've seen on some of your social media and something that you post about often enough is, are you able to tell us kind of what that is and what you're currently taking as far as that goes? Yeah. So I actually, um, two years ago, so I was, there's, there are all these, these, um, new ingredients out there that are relatively new over the last few years uh, that have come out as being potentially able to slow down rate of aging. Now, a lot of it's animal data, but they're very exciting because of the, you know, in Instead of just relieving symptoms, these are ingredients that potentially could slow down um, the actual rate of aging. And so there's all these different ingredients, and I started taking a lot of them. And then I realized that it was it was very difficult to order them all separately and keep track of them all separately and you know put them in my little container separately. And so I actually started my own company, which is called the Human Optimization Project or HOP. We call it the HOP box, and essentially created a monthly subscription box that gives you all of those 19 ingredients in little twice daily packs that you can. And just oh, grab it cool. and take it. So that's what I take. So we actually just launched about six weeks ago. Um, and it's hopbox, hop, H-O-P, hopbox.life. Um, but you can go on there and you can basically just order a box and then you just take two packs a day. But it's things like Inamen, which is an NAD precursor for mitochondria, spermidine, which is increases autophagy, which is cell turnover and, and getting your cells to rehab themselves. Um, it's, you know, uh, dihydroberberine, which is good for keeping your blood sugars down. Like there's all these things that have very specific mechanisms of action to help to slow down the things that cause you to age. Uh, and of course, aging itself is what's going to increase your risk of pretty much every disease. So if we can slow down your rate of aging, we're essentially decreasing your rate of different diseases. I think I understood most of those words there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did say them pretty quickly. So that's, so it's okay if you didn't. That's so cool. So does it come like you're saying they're ingredients? Are they like drinkable? Are they a powder? Are they? They're in pills. So it's it's five pills in the morning, five pills at night. So it's just basically 10 pills a day. Um, And we tried to keep, you know, there's a lot of people in the, in the world where I am who will take like dozens of pills a Mm -hmm. day, like just, you know, handfuls and handfuls. Um, But I felt like we wanted to really uh, reach the people who are not, interested in taking dozens of pills a day. The ones yeah. who are just, you know, people who want to be healthy, but they don't really want to do all the research themselves and they don't yeah. really want to have to keep track of like all the bottles and all the ordering and, that's and all pretty, of that. So that's, that's kind of pretty much me. I'm just hoping on raw dog and coffee all day will get me uh, through <laughs> through life, but maybe I need to do something more. So what, what exactly. got, well, one, of our, one of our founders is a, a ex NFL player and he's in his twenties and he, you know, he's very similar. Like, he's just like, I don't know, like I, I drink some water and I, you know, I go to the gym and that's pretty much it. And so it's been interesting to see him get interested in all of this and, and be sending him, sending me papers now to read and yeah. things like that. Cause he's, you know, he's gotten so into it. And this isn't to replace any of your multivitamins or other supplements that you should be taking, like uh, greens or something like that. This is just to go on top of it, correct? Yeah. So um, we do have a couple of normal sort of vitamins in there, like vitamin D and magnesium um, and and B vitamins. But we specifically didn't make it a multivitamin because depending on what you're eating, uh, you can, you can get most normal kind of multivitamin vitamins and nutrients in food. If your diet is, you know, if it's healthy enough and diverse enough. So, um, I tell people, you know, if you feel like your diet is not healthy um, and diverse, then yes, maybe you should do a green drink or a multivitamin. But if you're eating all the different, you know, colors and fruits and vegetables and, you know, good protein and all of that, then, uh, then you probably don't need a multivitamin. Most people usually don't. Right. right. You were saying, sorry again, uh, you were saying in there um, about the vitamin D, that's such like a hot topic right now, or at least the stuff that I'm listening to on uh, different podcasts and stuff. 
What's your take on taking vitamin D versus getting it from the sun directly? Do you need both? Well, especially being in Canada, I live yeah. inside for half the year. <laughs> if I'm not getting yeah, vitamin D yeah. from the hockey arena lights, then I'm not getting it during the winter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm in Utah where it's again snowing today. Um, yeah. So that's a great that's a great question. I definitely think that if you can't get into the sun, you know, for at least 10 or 15 minutes a day, then you should be taking vitamin D. So if you're at, you know, you know, upper the higher um, parts of the world or just snowier, cloudier parts, uh, then you're probably going to take, you know, at least 2000 international units a day, you know, even more like 5000 or more is probably better for most people. uh, Because vitamin D is not just a vitamin, it's also a hormone. So it has all these different hormonal actions in your body. It's really important for honestly, everything from bone health to immune health to like, it's it affects almost every system in your body. I also do think that there's some benefits to getting actual sun on your skin. Um, but you have to be a little bit careful because too much sun can certainly increase your risk for not just skin aging, but also skin cancer, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, I'm a big fan of sunblock, like on my face and my neck to try to help slow down skin aging. But I'm also a big fan of making sure in the summer, at least to go out, you know, like when it's not super, super hot and get, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes of sun on my skin, because, uh, the sun itself, doesn't just increase vitamin D, it also increases other hormones. So like serotonin, which is going to be like the one that kind of makes you feel contented and happy, um, as well as some of the other hormones like uh, nitric oxide, which increases your blood flow. So I think the sun has benefits outside of just vitamin D. Yeah, right. And Uh, these, sorry, the vitamin D, um, I know there's a liquid form, the pill, and it's fat soluble. So is there a risk of I got lots it, of that. Then I'll, I'll, I'll absorb tons of it. <laughs> is, is there a risk of it storing in your liver? Like, is there a, I know some vitamins are excreted through urine, but I believe vitamin D is stored in your liver. So is that a problem if you take too much? I, I mean, you definitely can get vitamin D toxic. And you can check your blood. Your, luckily, you can check your vitamin D levels really easily. It's a simple blood test. Every every big lab will have it. It's cheap. It's easy. Um, if your doctor won't do it, you, you can do it yourself. There are some different labs uh, now that you can actually just order your own tests. So that's you know if you're if you're concerned, I would definitely do that. But you can get too much vitamin D, usually not from the sun. But if you're taking you know twenty thousand international units a day versus like two to five, then yeah. you certainly could get too much. Okay, and that you can have to cost take a ton to- then. Yeah, you have to be taking a lot of it, usually. Sorry, just cycling back to um, when you said putting on sunblock. So I only found out recently that there's a difference between sunscreen and sunblock. So mm-hmm. what are the, the benefits of taking using sunblock uh, as opposed to sunscreen as far as, you know, um, health for your skin, health for your, your whole body, and just the, the actual effectiveness? I also wanted it. to jump on that yeah. one too. What are your thoughts on like, because I heard sunscreen, sunblock, whatever, it can it's like you're putting chemicals on yeah, your skin. Yeah. So is there not a high, like I've heard there's now an argument that could be bad for you as well. So, right. Yeah. Um, so sunscreen is what we think of as like the chemical sunscreens. And, okay. and that's the, you're going to find most often in the stores um, that does have a much, bunch of different ingredients. Some of the ones in sunscreens are thought to potentially be endocrine disruptors, which means they can affect your hormones in your body. Now, this is mostly studied in animals, um, mm. but it's more theorized in humans. But we do know that like, for instance, oxybenzoin, which is one of the chemicals in sun in a lot of sunscreens, can affect the coral reefs, like it's killing coral reefs, it's bleaching the oceans, it's killing fish, like there's, there's definitely data that it's affecting that ecosystem. So for that reason alone, I think it's 
avoid um, oxybenzoin and some of the other similar chemicals. I'm um, sorry. Is there, can you see on like the label yeah. where it'll be like, this doesn't have it? Oxybenzo? Yeah. It, Almost some of it. them will now. In the last year or so, people have become more um, more cognizant of that. Sunblocks are li- like literally blocking the skin from hitting your your the sun from hitting your skin. So that's you know that's like oxide and titanium dioxide. So in the old days when you had the, the you know the lifeguards would have the like white on their faces, um, like that's block because and it is going to physically block both UVA and UVB. It will also mm. usually block like blue light from your devices and other things that are trying to get to your skin. Um, and now there are a number of sun blocks that don't look white, you know, that actually you can, you can put on and they look normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not like you're a ghost walking around like they were <laughs> in the old days. So, um, so yeah, I'm a big fan of sun blocks, not sunscreens. Okay. So look for zinc oxide or titanium dioxide in your product. Okay. You wow. said blue light on, I didn't yeah, know blue I, light was I, bad for your skin. I know obviously when you're trying to go to bed, you want to put on your yeah. blue light blocker glasses or just avoid. Oh, I just hold my phone four inches from my face <laughs> and wonder why I can't sleep. <laughs> just scrolling TikTok. Like, hmm, are weird. you able to just touch on that for a second? What it does to your yeah, skin? You know, it's not, it, we don't know really for sure. It's one of those things that could be a problem for skin yeah. um, long-term you know, it's not, we don't know exactly for sure if it is, but, but it's, it is another form of light that's, um, you know, maybe too much of it's a bad thing, but it's still kind of in those, those, uh, we're not quite sure yet, but maybe it'll, we shouldn't keep get too much of it close to us. It'll be one of those things in 20 years. Like, I can't believe we used to do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I just yeah. wanted to go back. You're talking about food and like getting nutrients from food. And, um, I like to say I read an article to make me seem smarter than I actually am. I actually watched a TikTok on how our soil is, <laughs> is being so overturned and oversaturated that we're not getting the proper nutrients. I think magnesium was one of the main ones that um, we're not getting out of the ground anymore. Have you found any sort of research on that and like what sort of vitamins that we're lacking in today's mass produced food market? Yeah, and that is true. It depends on where you live in the in the country or in the world. You know, some soils are going to be you know better used, um, and they're and they're going to be rotating the crops, and they're going to be having different things. So you have to keep those nutrients in there, and then some places not so much when you have industrial farming and you know they're just overusing the land. Um, then you can get, certainly get foods now that are less nutritious than they used to be. And you're right, magnesium is definitely something that almost everyone is low in. So magnesium is really important for. Um, about 300 different enzymes, sort of reactions in your body. And um, almost everyone, not everyone, but, you know, probably 80 to 90% of people are low in magnesium. And that, that can affect everything from, you know, anxiety to sleep to muscle cramps to like, there's a whole list of things. I heard it's like huge, yeah. like people that can't sleep, they're now like recommending taking magnesium and boom, they have like a full night's sleep. Yeah, we, yeah, magnesium is great. We have it in our in my in the hawk box as one of the few vitamins in there because of that exact reason. Almost everyone's low on it, and it it can, it's not a sedative, but it definitely can kind of help you relax a little bit. It can help with migraines. It can help you know all all different kinds of things. Um, and it's it's very safe and it's very easy to take. You know, three to five hundred milligrams a day um, is tolerated by by most people. Okay, what are some other vitamins or supplements that like? What are your top five that you would recommend? people take just for general health and getting the most out of out of life 
Um, creatine is actually a big one. And, and that's one that usually will come in a powder, you know, like a lot of the bodybuilders will use creatine. Maybe you guys do. Um, but it's, it's not just, we think of it as just, we think of it as being for growing muscle in men. Like that's kind of the, yeah. the reputation it's gotten, mm-hmm. but it's actually important for men and women for muscle growing, but also for brain health. Uh, it's, it's really important for cognitive health and it has other uses in, it's shown some benefits just for helping to slow aging as well. Okay. So, uh, uh, and, you know, even if it was just for improving muscle health, you know, obviously keeping your muscles strong as you get older is one of the the main things you can do to stay youthful and to stay functional and, um, you know, and not break a hip and all of that. So I'm a big fan of creatine, which um, is cheap. It's easy. Creatine monohydrate is the best form for most people. Um, I love that one. A vitamin D, like I said, we, you know, we talked about vitamin D, magnesium. Those are some other ones that I think are really, really key uh, and have super solid research behind them also. I have plenty of muscle mass already, but what you said about creatine, I, I might actually do it for the other health effects too. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, do you find that when people are, um, you know, required different, uh, different supplements, different um, vitamins when you're, when you're at different ages, like if there's something that you're noticing people above above the age of 30, above the age of 40, 50, and so on are requiring different amounts uh, just based off of lifestyle and the, the food or nutrients they've you know, been eating in the past? Or the, is it fairly uniform these days? No, it, I think it's very different from one person to the next in terms of things that you get from food. Um, now, there are some, like a lot of the ingredients that we have in the hot box are things that you that you're not going to get much of in food, um, or it's not even available in food. And so we've chosen doses of those things based on what has been shown in studies to be most effective for most people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, for instance, older people are going to meet are going to need potentially higher doses of certain ingredients like NAD uh, precursors. So NAD is just, uh, it's used by, by your mitochondria to make energy. And mitochondria are like the batteries in your cells. And so as you get older, the mitochondria get lower and lower in energy and they need kind of more help to be able to make energy. And so one of the ways you can do that is to give this, these precursors to NAD, um, which are just going to be oral oral supplements. Um, but as you can imagine, if you're 70 years old, you probably need more of that to see the same, you know, to see benefits than if you are 20 or 30 years old, because you just don't, you just don't, there's a big, bigger gap in what those mitochondria need. So I definitely think that some of these things could be, ta- should be tailored to age, lifestyle, uh, medical problems, but some of them are, you know, going to be helpful for most people. And that's, that's kind of what we chose to put in, in that, uh, the box that we made. So the boxes are basically just like a blanket, like coverall for the general population. Can you get more specific? Yeah. Like, here's my blood results. Can you tailor something for me? Not with not with our product, at least not yet. Um, there certainly are products out there. Uh, like uh, Viome is a company that they do they do mostly vitamins and and minerals. So it's not going to be all of these kind of higher level ingredients like I'm talking about. But mm. things you know, if you're just need to look at your vitamin, your, your B your B vitamins and your zinc and your selenium and your you know your vitamin D, like all of your kind of vitamins and minerals, they will actually do. Um, they'll send you out some, either some blood tests. Um, they do, they do fecal tests. They do, they do all kinds of tests and then they can kind of help. They could put together a special formulation for you okay. based on your test. Okay. Um, so there are some companies that do that when it comes to mineral, like vitamins and minerals. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that are in the, our box, again, for the most part are not things that we can test for. And they're also not things that you necessarily need different doses on. Mm-hmm. Um, gotcha. but yeah, you can get the personalized vitamins. Oh, cool. 
Uh, I just have a question. Uh, I noticed that uh, women or couples now are having children later on in life, like after 35 or around that age. I know. Is there anything that people can do to reduce the complications or the chance of having a complication with a pregnancy later on in life? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's this, you know, there's, there's a lot you can do earlier, you know, obviously before you get pregnant years before, uh, but, but especially in the year or two before, and, you know, a lot of it comes down to just healthy lifestyle, you know, even for, even for the male partner, you know, trying to avoid drinking, trying to avoid smoking, you know, making sure that you're getting a lot of the, the nutrients and vitamins um, with women, it's a lot of, you know, folate as well as other uh, just basic vitamins and nutrients, making sure your thyroid for women, especially is in a really healthy range. Cause even a little bit of lower, yeah. lower thyroid, even if it's not abnormal, if it's just not quite where it should be, it can cause problems with fertility and it can cause problems with the pregnancy itself. It's with, with men, testosterone is big, is a big one as well. Unfortunately, the testosterone levels for the population at large have gone down by about 40% in the last 50 wow. or 60 oh, years, really? wow. Why um, is that? which is significant. Yes. Yeah. Um, it is probably, we don't know for sure. It's probably a lot of different reasons. Uh, for one thing, we're more overweight. We lift less heavy things. We do less work. We, you know, we don't exercise as much. We carry more um, abdominal fat or an obesity. We have, we take, take in more sugar. Um, we have more mm. stress. We sleep less. Uh, and we're exposed to more environmental toxins that can affect our hormones. So you add up all of those things and you have just a generally less healthy population. Mm -hmm. And with that goes a lower testosterone level. And then with that goes a lower sperm count. So right. sperm counts have also gone down by about 40% in the last 50 years as well. Is, is, there um, any, so is there any merit to this cell phone in the pocket thing for sperm counts? <clears throat> I heard like that yeah. is, is a correlation between like having your cell phone in your pocket or tucked under your leg or something, you know, in the general area. Um, and it's causing like a lower sperm count in, in our generation. It's, it, it's not conclusive, but it's definitely being looked at. And I definitely yeah. think it's worth not keeping your phone in your pocket. Like I have a 13 wow. year old son and I'm telling him, keep your phone out of your pocket. Like, you know, we don't know for sure because we just started having phones, you know, the last, mm -hmm. um, couple of years or 10 years or whatever, but it, it is definitely something that is potentially a concern because, you know, those, those cells, sperm specifically are very sensitive. Like they're sensitive to even heat. Like if you're trying to get pregnant, you shouldn't even be getting in a sauna unless right. you're putting like ice on your testicles. Right. Like, I mean, oh, it's your, your really? sperm are super sensitive, um, to heat, to, you know, all different things. So I, it makes yeah. sense to me that they would be sensitive to EMFs also. Holy. Yeah, I didn't know that. I so no idea. the TRT, is that something that you would, so replacement testosterone therapy. replacement therapy, yeah. is that something that you uh -huh. would recommend for more men? Um, I always recommend first trying to figure out why testosterone is low. And it, and a lot of times it's lifestyle, it's, it's choices that you're making every day. Mm -hmm. You know, it's how much you're exercising or not exercising. It's your stress level. When you have a lot of stress, testosterone levels go down. When you're not sleeping well, at least six hours a night or so, testosterone levels go down. Like that's been proven over and over. So a lot of it you can actually affect just by making some some smallish changes to your lifestyle, which will make you healthier overall anyway. Um, if those things don't work, then I think talking about you know, what else can we do? And that may be testosterone replacement where we actually give you testosterone, mm -hmm. or it may be something like uh, Clomid or HCG, which are drugs that we can give you that help you make your own testosterone. 
Um, right. So that's something in younger guys that we'll do because your testes are still working. They just haven't mm. had enough signal coming to them. Um, but in older guys, you know, if you're over 50 or so, then just replacing testosterone is probably the way to go. So you wouldn't recommend going out to your health supplement store and grabbing one of those testosterone boosting the gas station, five hour <laughs> testosterone. I used, to, I used to see those often enough and I'm like, Oh, I wonder if that would like help build muscle and stuff that I'm sure yeah, that's yeah. all uh, placebo. Yeah. I mean, most of those don't work. Um, some of them, most of them don't work. There's not, a, there's not really good data behind most supplements for testosterone. There's a couple of supplements that might be helpful, but there are even those I, I, in my practice, don't really see those working very well. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's always, it, you can always read about it and see what you think. Unfortunately, you know, supplements aren't regulated by the FDA, so we don't know really what's in there. Mm -hmm. Um, so whenever you're taking anything, any supplement, you just have to kind of understand that you could be taking anything or nothing. Um, right. so it's one of those like buyer beware situations. <laughs> The uh, red light, that's something that you mentioned earlier on. I just want, kind of wanted to circle back to that because I've, I've heard about that. What are the benefits of that or why would someone want to use that? So red light therapy is also called photobiomodulation. And it's just a, it's, you know, if you look at the light spectrum, there's, you know, there's, there's the visible lights, the various colors of visible light. <clears throat> and one of the, one of the lights that's visible is red light. And that's at about 650 nanometers on the visible light spectrum. And uh, red light has been shown. It doesn't, it goes into the skin. It goes through the dermis of the skin. So it doesn't go super, super deep, but it goes into the top layer of skin. And it's been, it's been shown to be able to increase the energy production by those mitochondria, those little batteries we talked about earlier in your cells. Mm -hmm. So because when those get low on energy, one way to increase energy production uh, potentially is to use red light therapy, at least for the skin. Um, and it's, so it's, it, it's also been studied for like skin healing. Like if you have, um, you know, skin, uh, if you've had a skin treatment or, uh, or you have a wound that's not healing, then uh, applying red light can help to heal, heal it faster and to, um, kind of help rejuvenate skin a little bit. And it's also being used for, uh, like anti-aging purposes, you know, just using the red light to help keep your skin looking a little bit more youthful. Mm -hmm. So right. it has a lot of applications. I like it. You know, I have a, I have several panels and I'll just blow my hair dry in front of my red light panel. And I like it, you know, I feel like it mm. makes, I feel like it gives me a little bit of energy, but it's like, this also this kind of like calming sort of meditative thing that I can do. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's, it's a, it's, it's, it's easy and it's gentle and it has some evidence behind it for being able to do some of those things. Right. And does that help with the, uh, acne? I think when I was younger, I, I struggled a little bit with acne and I think one of the things that they prescribed was, was red light. So blue light helps a lot with acne okay. and that's um, a little okay. different. Uh, light range that's going to be like 350 to 550 or so nanometers so it's a it's a different spectrum of light but and, and yeah actually now there are some companies that make you may have seen them like that make blue light masks that you just put on like you're almost like you know like freddie is it freddie krueger who was yeah, the guy with yeah. The mask? <laughs> right? like, i can't remember it was one of the like i masks think his name people, was like, jim carrey <laughs> <laughs> That's a different one. <laughs> but anyway, they have masks that have blue light that you can just wear, you know, every day for a certain amount of time. And it can help with acne because it's blue light. Interesting. Okay. Um, I wanted to go back. We were talking about stress and sleep. I was just wondering, like, in your practice, do you find, like, with our job, it's a very, like, hit and miss, both stress and peaks sleep. and sleep peaks as well. So, like, have you seen, like, a correlation? Yeah. Like, I'm no young bull anymore. I'm getting into the old old bull range now. So <laughs> just wondering like what long-term effect this like up and down of stress and sleep will likely play on with my life. 
Yeah. Um, first of all, I don't think you're an old bull. You don't look very old. Oh, to me, but... <laughs> um, you know, we know that, and this, this was unfortunately just the truth, but we know that circadian rhythm, um, things that affect circadian rhythm, like working nights or working shifts that are, you know, back and forth and crazy mm -hmm. willy nilly. Uh, we know that all of those things can certainly affect multiple different aspects of health. And we know that circadian rhythm problems are, you know, can increase your risk for heart disease, um, heart attacks and things like that because of the shifting all the always shifting your cells yeah you know, your cells like to be on a schedule and they there's it's like it is a 24-hour schedule that you're a lot of like probably 80 percent of your cells are on this circadian rhythm schedule where they know exactly when they're supposed to be resting and they know when they're supposed to be awake and, and when they're digesting and when they're, you know they have this whole schedule mm. and so it does it does affect your health i think um which is one of the reasons that shift workers just burn out so quickly whether it's icu nurses or er doctors or firemen or, you know, because it does do affect your health. I mean, luckily, my understanding is that with your job, you do have a lot of downtime too. So it's not quite as much, maybe it's not quite mm -hmm. as, uh, yeah, we just you know, not it's not stressful all the time. We just restructured I think it still affects our your health. so that we could be home for at least the next night. So like I found when we were on four on, four off, we do four nights in a row. And by like, if you had a couple yeah. of like call, like bad, yeah. like nights in your first two shifts, like you're by the fourth night you're a zombie so i found like going to 24s i'm a little bit obviously better like at least getting the next night in your own bed but now having a kid at home like sometimes that's that's not always guaranteed that you're going to sleep at home but i like just yeah. to put it in perspective the other night i uh, opted to take an overnight um overtime shift and like we were up all night and like yeah. the next day i was just i had to work in my bathroom and i was just like you know in second gear all day when it's like you know, if I would yeah. have just stayed home and had a whole night's sleep, like it just, it's crazy how much sleep plays a role yeah. in your overall function. It is crazy. You know, and even with, with men, even just a few nights of missing a few hours of sleep will decrease testosterone levels. So like, you know, if you're getting four or five hours of sleep, you know, even for just a week, maybe uh, versus six or seven, then your testosterone levels will, will go down by 15 or 20% um, wow. just in that week. Like it's, it's crazy how sensitive That's... your body is to not, to not sleeping. And, and I, you know, I totally get to begin it. With. You have no choice. <laughs> And you're already sensitive. Um, yeah, when I was in the ER, I, we would do six. We would do six overnight shifts on in a row. Wow. Oh my god! And then we'd have a day off. This is this is residency, but six in a row on one day off, and then you'd come back and you start. You know, you'd start another thing, and what? it was awful. Like you just by the yeah. end of it, you're just like, I don't. You're... I'm a zombie. I have no idea how I'm functioning. And would would then like I'm I'm assuming at that point you've got to be taking like drinking a ton of coffee, caffeine, whatever you can Ooh, take. Like segue. does that does the caffeine exacerbate yeah. all of that and make it mm -hmm. make all those effects even, even more? That, yeah. Because yeah. obviously in our job, there's a lot of coffee drinking. A ton of coffee. Yeah. I think it, the fire department runs on caffeine. Yeah. 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 ER as well. The caffeine is interesting. It affects about half the population are fast caffeine metabolizers. Okay. And then about half of you are slow metabolizers. I'm fast, which means that I can drink, I can drink a cup of coffee or an energy drink or something. And within a few hours, it's out of my system and I can go to bed. When I was in the ER, I would drink energy drinks, you know, multiple of them during my shift. And then I'd go home and, and I'd vault to sleep, you know, be to sleep immediately. Like it didn't, yeah. I would get, I got so used to it 
didn't even bother me. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas some people are very sensitive to caffeine and it will affect your sleep and circadian rhythms, you know, for mm-hmm. maybe six, you know, for six hours after drinking it or eight hours wow. after drinking it. So you can actually do a blood oh. test that looks, looks at um, one of the, some of the genetic tests, like the 23andMe and some of those will show you if you're a fast or slow caffeine metabolizer, okay. Okay. which can kind of help you make decisions about like, should I have this cup of coffee if I'm going to be off in two hours yeah. or should I not, you know? Or like look um, at so, the time but of yeah, day. I mean, yeah. It's 405. Yeah. Four is my limit. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I was telling these guys earlier about uh, the reason that I, I think it was you that suggested not to use mouthwash or reduce the amount of the times you use mouthwash. Yeah. Can you just touch on that and, and explain why? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It probably was me. So, um, one of the things that your body needs to uh, to get blood flow to your different parts of your body is called nitric oxide. Mm-hmm. And nitric oxide is a chemical that basically tells your blood vessels to go from being smaller to go you know to bigger. So it vasodilates your blood vessels. And uh, it's it's important for all different things from exercise to, you know, just functioning. But one of the areas that I talk about a lot is the importance of nitric oxide in sexual health, mm-hmm. because you actually have to have, you know, blood flow in order to have erections in men and women. And one of the ways to get nitric oxide, and especially as you get older, is you get it through your diet. So you're eating like beets or arugula or greens or pomegranate or things that have nitrates, um, like fruits and vegetables with nitrates. Um, so that you take the nitrates in and what happens is in your mouth, there are these good, healthy bacteria that they complete a process that turns the nitrates in food into nitric oxide in your body. Are you with me so far? Yep. I'm following. Yep. <laughs> okay, perfect. So what mouthwash does antiseptic mouthwash. So the stuff like Listerine is things that just wipe out all of the bacteria mm-hmm. is they kill those healthy bacteria in your mouth that's required to make nitric oxide from food. So you could eat all the beets or take all the pre-workouts you want or eat, you know, all of those things. They're not actually going to make it nitric oxide if you're using a mouthwash, you know, several times mm-hmm. a day. So mm-hmm. I tell people, you know, you can use mouthwash occasionally, certainly keep brushing your teeth. Um, and you could also use, or you could use kind of a do-it-yourself mouthwash or, you know, more of a like holistic mouthwash that's not going to kill the bacteria. Yeah. Um, but don't use like Listerine twice a day. That's okay. that. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, so that plays a role in, or it could possibly pull a, uh, play a role in ED. Um, so one of the treatments for that vi- is Viagra. Really? But like what? that, like yeah. the nitric oxide. Well, she just said that it opens up the blood yeah. vessels, oh, so right. dilates okay. them. Well, yeah. you know what? Maybe I can do one better and not even brush my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> hey, babe, we're making it. We're do, yeah. we're making a baby. I'm not gonna brush my teeth. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you about uh, the other treatments for ED other than Viagra, because that's obviously the common one that people would go to yeah. their doctor for. Um, but I saw right. just in the last couple of days, you were doing shockwave for that. Mm-hmm. Are you able to just, yes. how does that help? So first of all, let me just mention real quick. So Viagra, the way that it works is it actually blocks the breakdown of nitric oxide. So it prevents your nitric oxide from being broken down and to be and being ineffective. So basically, you know, that's exactly how that works. So you have to have your own nitric oxide in your body for Viagra to work. Um, So that's kind of where this is all coming full circle, right? Um, 
but yeah, so that's Viagra. And then shockwave therapy is something that's been around. It's been around for decades, but probably the last six or so years have we been using it for ED. And okay. the way that it's, it's basically a handheld device. It's in the doctor's office. It's It, it sends these high pressure sound waves. Um, it sounds like a jackhammer, actually. It's like, <laughs> um, but it sends these sound waves. <laughs> I know it sounds fun. Um, it, it sounds it sounds sound waves into the penis. And what that does is it, it, it recruits stem cells to the area, which are going to be helpful for, for repairing. And it also increases nitric oxide. So it, that's about, you know, blood flow. Um, and you do a series of these treatments. You do a, maybe six treatments over three weeks. And it's really effective, um, especially in people who have kind of mild to moderate ED. Um, you know, if it's, if, as long as it's from lack of, you know, a blood flow problem versus mm-hmm. like, you know, if you've had a spinal cord injury, it's not going to help with that. Or if you know, if you've had right. hormonal problems, it won't help with that. But if it's a blood flow problem that's causing your ED, then um, then these treatments are really, really helpful. Uh, and about 75% of people will see some benefits and it's completely safe. Like there's no side effects that are no negative side effects uh, from it. So it's and, pretty um, cool. Is this, is this a treatment that they have to, they people have to continue to undergo or is it sort of like a one, one treatment, one cycle of treatments and, and you're done? Um, it kind of depends on where, you know, how, where you are. Some, okay. some people will do this. Some men will do this with, if they don't even, they don't have ED. They're just like, Hey, I've gotten, you know, I'm 35 years old and I want to just kind of keep things as healthy as possible. Yeah. So they'll do a series of six treatments, maybe like once a year. Okay. Um, and mm. they're just kind of, you know, it's just an occasional thing that they'll do. If you have, se- you know, more severe symptoms, you have, maybe you have diabetes and high blood pressure, you know, you've had several risk factors for mm. ED, then you may have to do more treatments. Like maybe instead of six, you're doing 12. And you may have to repeat, you know, in six months. Um, but it, you know, these treatments tend to last about a year, okay. but that depends also on what else you're doing to stay healthy and keep those yeah. cells in the penis. Wow. And for the people at home, uh, Tim is taking a surprising amount of notes on this section. I, I don't know why. I, I think can <laughs> do the math on that one. Um, I was just wondering is, so like with ED, is it like, it's, what do you find? Is it more a psychological thing or is it more of a physiological thing? Um, it depends on the age. Certainly, in younger men, we see, we seem to see more psychological causes. We seem to you know we see more porn addiction or, or porn overuse at least um, as the cause. Uh, and but then as you get a little older, then then it's more often because of some other thing. You, you know, lack of blood flow, mm-hmm. uh, inflammation, nerve problems, hormones, um, or a combination of the two. Like it, you know, so, sometimes these things feed each other, right? Like if you have mm-hmm. a little bit of doubt or concern, then you have. Yeah. And you get ED and then, then you, then that be makes more doubt and concern. And it's like a whole, like, you know, it's like a vicious loop. So they can sometimes go together, but that's, you know, the general breakdown, but you know, everyone's different. Right. I just Mm -hmm. want to uh, just touch on quickly here. We've been focusing a little bit on the male here, but the female, Mm -hmm. as far as menopause goes, there's low energy. I know hot flashes, low energy are some of the big symptoms of that. Um, Is there anything that women can do that are maybe going through that? that can boost energy as far as like uh, hormone replacement for them or, or like is there what, anything, what anything to expect or yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, menopause is a big topic and I think it's really important because I think it has, yeah, it's kind of gotten this people, people just don't talk about it that much, but, but basically, mm-hmm. you know, starting at age, even at age like 35 or 40, you can start having perimenopause symptoms. So that's like 10 years or so before actual menopause is when your egg 
production is your, your you know your egg ovulation and your quality of eggs start to go down. So it's this you have this 10 year period starting around 35 or 40, sometimes even younger, you know, because it could be or it could be premature, but when you start having less quality eggs. Is that when like the quote unquote like the geriatric pregnancy phase begins is like that because I know it's there's a certain window, I think yeah. it's like 35 where it becomes um riskier to get pregnant because of the egg quality and Yep, exactly. So yeah, over 35, we, we call it a, you know, it's a, it's a, yeah, geriatric, or there's another word for it too, but basically advanced maternal age, uh, kind of pregnancy, mm-hmm. and where it's just, it's going to be, you're going to have higher risk of having um, problems with the pregnancy or problems with the baby. Uh, because the egg quality starts to go down uh, your ovaries, unfortunately age about two to five times faster than any other tissues in the body. And so they're aging and aging and aging and aging. So by the time Mm. they get to be 35, they're like, we're done. And then you have this period of time, maybe 10 or 15 years where they're still functioning and they're still making, you know, your ovaries, the cells around your ovaries, uh, around your eggs actually make estrogen and progesterone. So the main hormones for women mm. are made by those cells around those eggs. And so as the eggs are stop being as reliable, then you stop making those hormones as reliably. So that's perimenopause. And that's right. a pretty long period of time. And during that period, you've got like hormones are just kind of all over the place. You could have, mm. they could be high, they could be low, they could be in the middle, they could be normal. Um, you know, it's really unpredictable. Um, but we, you can replace like progesterone or testosterone in those women. Those tend to be a little bit lower, but then menopause happens at about age 50 is average, but it can be earlier or later. And that's when your estrogen levels just plummet and your progesterone levels plummet. And that's when you start hearing the most about hot flashes and night sweats and moodiness and weight gain and, you know, all these symptoms, although they can start years ahead. Um, And, you know, the answer to to what you can do, the main thing I recommend is, is replacing those hormones because you're having those symptoms because your body, you know, it's, it's like your body's like screaming out like, oh my gosh, feed me, feed me, you know, where are my hormones? (laughs) Like from your brain to your. If you replace them, would it stave off menopause or would it, your body know the difference? Like if you're low on progesterone and then you all of a sudden take a bunch of progesterone, would it act similarly in the in the body so yeah you want to take like a bite a bioidentical or, or body identical progesterone which is the same chemical that your body's making it's not going to affect how your body is making progesterone because your body will so your body's still the you know when you when you ovulate the egg itself it's the cells around there that end up making progesterone so it's still going to make progesterone okay. you're not going to stop your your production it's not like with testosterone therapy which does do that um but it is what but you're kind of just supporting your body because you're not making as much as you used to but then mm-hmm. after menopause you're, you don't even have at that point you have very few eggs and they're not being released anymore gotcha. so you're not making your own hormones and so if you don't if we don't give you hormones, then you don't have them. And and what people don't know is that estrogen is important for your brain health, your blood vessel health, your heart health, your pelvic floor health, your, you know, like it's basically important for all your skin health. Um, And so when you lose estrogen at menopause, all of a sudden you have a huge increase. When you look at the, you can look at the risk curve right after menopause in those first five years of, you know, increased risk of dementia and osteoporosis and sarcopenia, which is is bone marrow is, is a muscle loss and heart and heart attacks, heart disease, strokes, you know, UTIs, like all of these things go up significantly after menopause because you don't have estrogen. So if you can replace estrogen, you know, then I recommend doing so. Wow. Um, 
so I had a, a question about, so I, this might turn into sort of a grade eight informal sex ed class, but I heard that w- women are born with a finite amount of eggs. Is that true? So yes, that's true. With, with that, if say you're doing something like um, you're, you're trying to get pregnant and you're doing like in vitro and you're releasing like five, 10 eggs at a time, would that like, say you prolong that um, process and do it several times Would that, if you're releasing more eggs, are you going to reach menopause quicker? That's a great question. And not usually because what you, what we do, what you don't know is that even though only one egg actually gets released each month, usually you, mm-hmm. you, you ovulate one egg, what happens is there are 50 or a hundred or even more eggs that are kind of like, they're all getting in various stages of growth. And so your body essentially is like, like always ready, getting ready to release an egg, but then like oh, one okay. egg, like a golden egg is chosen and mm-hmm. the chosen egg is released and all the rest of those other 50 or a hundred are just, they all, they just die off. And so that's why, you know, you know, for, for instance, if you do uh, birth control pills for 10 years and you're not, you're not releasing any eggs, you know, you'd think right. that that would help you. But it doesn't. It doesn't help you. It doesn't. It doesn't. You know, doesn't delay menopause. Um, and usually, fertility treatments are not going to bring it on either, for the same reason, because okay. you're still releasing these follicles even if you're not ovulating. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. Okay. Um, and when would you recommend someone going through menopause or beginning menopause when they should l- like look into a hormone replacement for like prolonged health? Like, at what point should they consider? Um, as early as possible, you want to, if you're going to start hormones, you want to start them uh, ideally within six years of menopause. I mean, ideally, ideally you start them like right at the same time, you know, like as soon as you're missing periods, you're seeing your doctor, you're getting your, you're getting your, um, you know, hormones either checked or just getting on, just getting on medications. Um, and you're not having a, a length of time because what happens is, um, is, you know, say you go through menopause here and you, and then you have, you know, five or 10 years go by that you're not on hormones. So mm-hmm. what's happened in those five or 10 years is that you've had a rapid breakdown in your bones. You've had atherosclerosis, which is starting to build up in your, in your, your blood vessels. So you're, you know, you're putting yourself at risk for heart disease, like all of these things are happening. Your brain is, is, is breaking down slowly. And so you sort of have this whole window where your body is deteriorating to some degree, which I I know sounds awful. Um, so if you can, if you can get to it faster and stop those things from happening, you're going to have better results. Oh, wow. And with, with, um, I guess hormone replacement therapy, is it an injection? Is it a, is it a pill? Uh, I, I truly don't know a lot about it. So yeah, I just, I don't know how, how you would take it into your body. Yeah. Um, so for testosterone, so for men, testosterone therapy can either be an injection or, or it can be um, a cream. Those are the two most common ways, pellets sometimes, but usually testosterone is injected a cream or like a gel or like a, you know, like a patch. You can do that yeah. too. For, um, for women, for estrogen and progesterone, and, and women also can take testosterone and a lot do, mm-hmm. um, that can be all different, you know, it can be creams, it can be pills, it can be injections, like there's various different ways of delivering it, depending on what the hormone is, okay. and also depending on what the preference is on the, of the person. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. So um, you mentioned birth control, and I just wanted to circle back on that, because now having a daughter, I was just wondering, there's a lot of research being done um, now or realizations that like it might actually be super detrimental for women to be on birth control for an extended period of time. So I'm just wondering what your take would be on that. You know, I think most people do fine on birth control and I, and, but, but some don't, 
And I think that that's the, that's the key thing is that that people need to know, just know about the risks. Like there's certainly an increased risk of blood clots with blood birth mm-hmm. control. So if you had any history of blood clots um, or you're obese or you have, you know, other history of that, then you want to be very careful with it. Um, some people gain weight on birth control. Some become more inflamed. Like there are some things that can happen with the traditional birth control. Uh, if you want to be super safe, my favorite kind of birth control is, is a copper IUD. Like that's going to be, it's not yeah. hormonal, but it still does the trick and it's not going to affect all your other hormones. Mm. Um, but you know, some, some women will get depressed on birth control. Like there's just a lot of various things that can happen. Um, I think the main thing is to have conversations with your doctor, like just have the doctor mm-hmm. make sure that they talk about the potential side effects so that if they happen, then you know about them and that you can then, you know, change your method. Um, but you know, there's some women do great on birth control and they're on it for a decade and they have no problems. So right, it's yeah. a, it's effective and and really good for some people, but it certainly can have side effects just like any drug, you know, it's essentially like a hormone replacement, right. Or a hormone blocker. It's a, yeah, it's more of a blocker. Like you're essentially giving a synthetic, uh, version of estrogen and progesterone that are, they're not the same chemicals your body makes. They're, they're kind of stronger and they block the receptors in your body so that your body's not making those hormones themselves. Um, but they're acting like those hormones. So it's basically a kind of a synthetic, uh, hormone that's doing some, uh, blocking and affecting the receptors. Right. Um, and there's now, um, studies and releases on like a male birth control. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Could you just touch on that for, I I don't know how it works. So yeah, I've only, I've only read the headlines about it. I haven't read the article. I've, I've seen different things pop up, but the one that I was most curious, I I don't, first of all, I don't know that any of these are going to work and I don't think men will take them, but, um, (laughs) one of the ones that I saw that was, uh, that I thought was interesting. And also I can't, I can't imagine it works is that it's a, it's a ring that you put around the base of your, the scrotum and you, it stays there. Um, and it, it's like a, it's, I guess I think it heats up a little bit, like it's warm. And remember how I was telling you how sensitive that Mm -hmm. area is to it's not like hot, like you're not burning yourself, but it's warm. And that warmth over time prevents the um, the sperm from being made. If the sperm don't like it, they don't get made. The problem is you have to wear it for like 90 days before it even becomes effective. What? <laughs> I can't imagine how uncomfortable that would be. Can you get them like I don't think, I mean, I, I've just read the articles and I was just like, I, there's not one guy that I know who is going to wear a ring around the base of the scrotum for 90 days and then where that, that's just like to get yeah. to the effective and then you have to keep you got to keep wearing it all the time but if you like put, just if you put flames on it it could look pretty cool <laughs> and then i think i think that would get a lot more people maybe looking. some jewels yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah just dress it up a little bit yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's because they're coming out too plain you gotta spice it up kind of a theme yeah i like where you're going with that <laughs> So at the beginning, I'm reading your bio. I want, I've been wanting to talk about this all hour, but it's been a fascinating conversation. But I, you do work with stem cells, and I just like I'm fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I'm thinking the most grand thing about it in like fixing paraplegic and quadriplegic stuff. Like, what is a typical use for a stem cell, and what are your thoughts on fixing major physical problems? So the most common uses are going to be treating like musculoskeletal pain, like chronic pain, you know, arthritis or um, you know, Achilles, Achilles tendonitis, or, you know, kind of chronic pain in the different joints, neck, back joints um, that have been there for a long time that you can inject some cells either from the patient or from somewhere else to send signals to that tissue to, you know, stop sort of stop being so, uh, 
dormant. Like the stem cells in your body get lazy over time and they stop healing and they stop, you know, being able to regenerate. So you're trying to kind of kick off that process. I use them a lot for skin rejuvenation to help with improving skin health, uh, for hair restoration, and then for sexual optimization. I'll do stem cell injections for that as well. Hmm. Um, as far as uh, spinal cord injuries, there it's still they're still being researched. Like I, there's certainly a number of doctors who are 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 experimenting with them, but probably it's going to be a more the types of stem cells we have right now are kind of like a generic, like they're like generic stem cells. Like they came, they may come from your own bone marrow or your own fat, uh, but we're okay. just, we take them out and we put them somewhere else. Or maybe they come from a placental, like a placenta, we take them out and put them somewhere else. But yeah. they're not specifically stem cells that are made to do a a thing. They're not, they're not there to, oh. like they're not being programmed to repair nerves, for yeah. instance. Like that, this capability is happening and it's being tested in labs, but but right now there aren't products out there that we could say, this is a, a stem cell that is specifically engineered to repair that nerve tissue. Um, okay. But I think that when, once we have those kinds of products, it's certainly, you know, obviously it will need to be tested and it will depend on a lot of things. But I think that there's there's promise for sure in the traumatic brain injury space. Um, so TBIs, big promise mm -hmm. for stem cells mm -hmm. and probably for spinal cords, but that depends a lot on the type of injury, the length of time since the injury, you know, all right. of that. Yeah. Right, right. Oh, wow. That's so cool. No, no, I think that's a great way to kind of wrap things up here today. And I just want to thank yeah. you so much for your contribution. You're coming on here. I think it's awesome. And I think a lot of people will get yeah, a lot of good great. information. Yeah. Is there any way that people can contact you or get a hold of you on social media that you kind of want to leave them with? Yeah. So I'm pretty active on Instagram. It's Dr. Amy B. Killen. Um, I also have a website, amykillen.com. And then if you're interested in the supplements, it's hop, H-O-P, box, dot life. Um, and those are all my places. 